Alright everybody, welcome back to another episode of the FearCast. This is the podcast dedicated to OCD, anxiety, anxiety spectrum disorders, and treatment and getting your life back. My name is Kevin and I am your host. I'm a licensed clinician specializing in the treatment of anxiety spectrum disorders, including OCD and other things. And uh, I, I am delighted to have you all join me. Uh, if you are new to this podcast, this is a question and answer based podcast where you can, uh, if you have questions about OCD, OCD and anxiety, anxiety treatment, cognitive behavioral therapy, exposure and response prevention, mindfulness-based treatments, all those things, you can send me a question about it. And likely speaking, I will consider it and I will put it up on a future episode. So you can go over to fearcastpodcast.com to learn more about that. If you want to ask a question, you can go to that same website and go to the submit a question link and uh, send it there. I will get it. I will read it and I will consider it and I will likely put it up on a future episode. So for all of you return listeners, thank you so much for joining me yet again. Uh, it really does mean a lot to me that uh, that all of you would join and by the way, thank you all, uh, all of you who messaged me and have been letting me know about the snafu problem stuff that's been going on with my podcast. Um, I'm a man who hates the internet. I This podcast is founded, and or not founded, but it, it resides on the internet, but I hate the internet. And you know what? I think because the internet also hates me. So, Two and a half years ago, I set up the podcast. I set all the all the things up and connected all the the who's its and doodads and and plugs and buttons and all the stuff I had to do in the back of it. And um, and then I didn't touch it. I don't touch it at all. And then all of a sudden, a month ago, without it knowing, without it telling me, without my knowing, it just stopped connecting. Now, if you are a subscriber to the podcast, you got the previous episodes, the, the two interviews that I, I had done uh, with Dr. Steve and Dr. Greenberg. And um, however, if you are new and just found this, it looked like I just stopped posting. So thank you to all of you folks who had emailed me over at Fearcast Podcast or over at Instagram and just let me know that um, that it was uh, disconnected and wondering where the heck the uh, the Greenberg uh, uh, interview was. And um, anyways, I think I got it corrected, but um, no one seems to know anything about the internet, myself included. I've ca called all the people I need to call and they keep saying, uh, well, you need to call your web developer. I'm the web developer. I don't know what I'm doing, and it's also impossible to find a web developer. So there's that. Anyways, I think it's connected. Hopefully, we're all going to get this. Um, here's the other problem is that uh, I would usually dedicate more time to trying to figure it out, but I'm on paternity leave. I'm on parental leave. So I, I am not in the office. My life is is overwhelmed by child right now. So we, we had our second child uh, about a week and a half ago, and um, it's exhausting. So we are up numerous times in the evening. I try to get that kid to go back to sleep. The child is adorable. Child is healthy. Child is happy. My wife is happy and healthy as well. Uh, all of us are just very tired. So I am sneaking in to uh, record this front bit. And uh, I recorded this interview a couple of weeks ago. So uh, I just jumped into the office really quick to record this front bit. Um, and so uh, why don't I tell you a little bit about that? Well, first off, for all of you who are new to this, everybody, um, this is going to be a slight departure from a previous format where we, you know, if I do an interview with someone, it's typically just strictly about OCD and anxiety. So this is going to be, again, slightly different. So I'm talking to Officer Jordan. I'll tell you a little bit more about him later. But um, what I wanted to have him on for was was to talk about dealing in crisis situations, including life-threatening situations, and kind of trying to get some general tips uh, on, on, on how to deal with stressful situations. And this is kind of geared at not just the person with 
with OCD and anxiety, but just kind of the average person. And so therefore, I don't know why I didn't think about this beforehand. And, and Officer Jordan and I kind of discovered this, and you can hear us wrestling with this in the first maybe 10 minutes of the interview, is that we're, we're coming at this from different angles. It was kind of interesting because what you and I have been talking about for so long in this podcast is, you know, paying less attention to our anxiety, um, focusing more outward, and how to deal with overwhelming feelings of anxiety in a more effective way. What's interesting is Officer Jordan often deals with people who don't experience enough anxiety, who aren't on edge, who aren't hyper aware of the world around them. So, in, 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 so the language that we were all using, or we, us two were using, was a little bit off, but I think we tried to correct that, and I try to address some of that in this. So I just want to let everybody know that the, the topics that we're going to be going over are not going to be OCD-specific, but they are going to be OCD-relevant. And I'm going to try to tie in some of that stuff, but some of this is is a departure from our, our, our typical OCD talk. So just so y'all know, it's not just exposure and response prevention, though, again, we do touch on it. It's more of just what are some basic things that we can all do in regards to safety and thinking about being safe and also just that balance between like, what is a what, though you may have OCD, you may have chronic anxiety and an anxiety disorder or panic attacks. How can you also be aware of the world around us and to take reasonable and safe precautions in the world around us without going way overboard? So, it's a it's a it's a sticky wicket to to go through, right? And uh, and that's what I, I, I hopefully that's a a, a a needle that I threaded thread threaded either way. Hopefully I, I did this effectively, but um, you will all tell me at some point, I'm sure. So within this episode, we are going to be uh, striking that balance between talking about folks who have a chronic anxiety disorder and neurotypical folks who who don't have the anxiety that we've been talking about historically on this show. Now, while it, it was also surprising, as I mentioned, that uh, we are coming at you know anxiety from different perspectives, where you know we're trying to say, well, we need to work on having less anxiety, and he is actually saying, no, in a lot of situations, we need to have more anxiety, and and he goes into more detail about what that looks like. But in addition to being surprised about that, uh, I was again reminded that um, that when I laugh on this podcast, I sound like I've been smoking for a hundred years. And if all of you are grossed out by this, I'm sorry uh, for all of you who have misophonia and that just gets you the the voice or throat crackling or lung crackling, I deeply apologize. It is not my intention to sound like, um, you know, to sound like a hundred year old smoker. Um, but alas, that is just what my my lungs and sinuses do. So uh, this was in editing this podcast, I was struck by that. So um, pardon that. Uh, I will try to laugh less on this podcast, um, because I don't think the lung crackling is going away anytime soon. I've had it for my entire life. So it just sounds like that. It's not the sexiest. So there is that. All right, enough about that. Let me tell you a little bit about Officer Jordan. So Officer Jordan wears many hats. He is an active police officer in the Southern California area with a specialized gang unit focusing on violent crime. And when he is off the clock, Jordan heads Precision Safety Incorporated, offering consultation and education on public safety, firearms, and personal security. He is also a police department instructor in firearms use and tactics. His teaching and humanitarian works are all focused towards helping to reduce victimization and to bridge the gap of understanding between police in the community. 
So without further ado, here's my interview with Officer Jordan. All right. Officer Jordan, thank you so much for joining me and uh, the listeners here on the FearCast. Um, so as you know, we're here to talk about safety. We're talking about danger. We're talking about um, how we can differentiate and understand what danger actually is, how we can manage danger and our, our own anxiety a little bit better. And, and I understand you are the man to talk to you about all this. Uh, yeah, you could say that, you know, uh, I like to say I've tragic knowledge from all the various experience and training that I've gained over the years and I'd like to share that with others. All right. So, um, so I've got a list of questions here and again, we're, we're just going to kind of go and see where we go on this, but, um, but in the, but in the light of, uh, of, of thinking about, about danger, I'd love to just, or think about danger and, and anxiety and how we can manage it. Um, what are some common misconceptions that people have about dangerous situations and, um, and how can you clear some of those up? Totally. Um, you know, I do I do a lot of various uh, speaking engagements to high schools, churches, corporate, um, you know, here in Los Angeles, we're based out of and also abroad internationally. And a lot of these talks, the issue of safety comes up, whether it's firearm safety, but most times it's like personal safety. I give a lot of talks on female personal safety to different uh, groups, groups of females. And so one of the things I always try and put across is this idea of what you should have your focus on versus what you, you shouldn't. And to kind of give an example of that, you know, I, I have found that um, currently in, in the moment there people and oftentimes women have this fear that they're going to be home alone in their apartment on the third floor and someone is going to break into their home, some stranger rape and murder them. Uh, when in reality that almost never happens. It, it does, but it's a very rare, rare thing. Um, but we, we have this generation now that grew up on CSI, right? Where that's the opening scene where some young, attractive <laughs> girl, broken in, raped, murdered, smash cut to credits, um, and the obsession with serial killers and these podcasts and things. And so it creates this perception like this is this common thing. Whereas those same uh, those same people or those same women that are very afraid of that when it's highly unlikely are going into Hollywood uh, to the clubs on the weekends, getting drunk, and then they're walking back to their car in two-inch two heels, drunk, and with their faces you know, at their cell phones. And so back, you know, when I was working Hollywood, we'd see that and it'd be like, that's a walking robbery report because those were so much of our robbery victims mm -hmm. um, of going. And we will get into that more of just the importance of awareness and things like that. Okay. And so it's kind of like, all right, what are, what are the more likely threats and um, media and movies have kind of warped our perception a little bit of what, uh, what suspects violent and sexual predators look like, how they act, uh, and it can be a little different. And so in a lot of the speaking engagements I do, I try and dispel some of those myths and give a clear picture on how to read people and recognize danger. And part of that is, and when I, you know, when I'm talking to parents groups about um, various things of, you know, how to protect your kids or your congregation from, you know, sexual predators and things like that. Uh, this whole idea of a stranger being the one to victimize, like, yes, these things do happen, but especially in the area of sexual assault, it's someone that the victim knows uh, the majority of all the, all the time. And so this idea of, you know, we even teach our kids, 
hey, stranger danger, uh, which in reality, it's going to be someone that they know that has kind of earned their trust is going to be the one that victimized them. So there are all these kind of uh, misunderstandings that you're not going to really know unless you you see and you deal with this stuff day in, day out, like I do in my you know fellow officers. Um, like going back, like I said, that kind of tragic knowledge that we have. And so I also... Uh, then I bring this to the point of going, so it's really important that people are able to read other people and recognize danger and trust their instincts, which uh, we can go into more later if, if you like. That would but be great. those are the things that are going to really allow people to not only avoid, um, but also survive dangerous situations. Right, right. Yeah, and I think there's a there it just e- even in that there is a there there can be that 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 discrepancy that you, you pointed out. There are things that you should be thinking about, or you, excuse me, you, things you should focus on, and things you should not focus on, or maybe are 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 less helpful to focus on. Um, exactly. And, and there can be this even even just in in what you'd what you'd laid out, and I think it'd be important to go into some of those some of those details. But it sounds like that there is this important characteristic of like the 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 perception that we have, the thoughts that we the thoughts that we meditate on, and the thoughts that we the thoughts of the worries that we cultivate will have an impact on the perception that we have about the world around us. And also thinking about thinking more uh, thinking more broadly about uh, where are the areas that we are vulnerable and where are the areas that we are less vulnerable, and trying to put those into into reasonable categories. I, th- I think it's also helpful to, to take a step back as well and to say, you know, we're in, in that there isn't an element of, you know, bl- blaming the victim or saying that, you know, if someone was distracted or thinking about something else that they, they had it coming or that they wanted it to happen. But there's this characteristic of, you know, what are the things that we can do in these various situations that are going to keep us keep us safe that are going to be reasonable steps that we should and ought to take that are going to keep us safe. And what are the, what are the whole bunch of things that, that we, pay a whole lot of attention to that aren't really going to get us very far anyways, that, that are, aren't actually as helpful. If that makes totally. any sense. <laughs> and no, it, it does because ha- all these things that you know, I'm talking about of instincts, awareness and reading danger and avoiding things. These are things that are really hard to do for anyone. And that's why the importance of training and education, all the things that, you know, I, I try, I've been doing over the years. Um, it's hard for anyone. I think it might be especially hard with someone that struggles with anxiety or OCD that, you know, someone who's, uh, isn't really able to take their thoughts captive as well as p- potentially someone else. And that's going to make it maybe even more of a, of a struggle because if certain things or if everything is, is fearful to you, you can't actually recognize danger when it, when it actually happens more. Yeah. Yeah. I hear what you're saying. It's got, and, um, and, and yeah, with, uh, with, for for all of my regular listeners, yeah, with uh, with OCD and anxiety, we do talk a lot about um, you know acknowledging the thoughts that we have and trying to be trying to uh, this, is, this is a tough way to say it trying to better categorize what is actually a danger and what is actually not a danger. Um, and sometimes folks can go on the other end of it and to say, well, the the way out of my anxiety or my OCD is to just to completely abandon my alarm system that's in my head um, mm-hmm. whereas for some folks they're going to be too far on that end and you kind of said you know to the point about trusting your instincts some people will say well anytime I feel an element of danger or an element of fear that ought to be heated that ought to be listened to and you know play play it safe don't go anywhere don't do anything 
And that, and that's a good point. And because we do have people on all sides of the spectrum. So there are those people that exactly their, their alarm bells are always going, are always going off. Um, and that, that's really, really tough. And so for those people, I try and lean into the, okay, let's give you the skills and the tools to learn how to, like I said, read people, recognize red flags, recognize these dangerous things. So you can better sift through all the information that your, your brain is giving you. Um, but on the other hand of the spectrum, and this is what I find a lot of, um, it's actually giving permission for people to trust their instincts because as a society, we're a very logical driven um, society. And so these things of intuition, feeling, women's intuition, uh, you know, a mother's intuition, these are very real things and they're not widely valued by our society. Unfortunately, they're not uh, very valued by men, I would say. Um, so for that group of people that are just going, hey, is it okay to listen to these things? And, and I say this because a lot of times we have victims of crime that will say after the fact, when we're you know taking a report, I had a bad feeling about blank, that this place, this person, this situation, but I didn't listen to it. Ooh. And so on that side, like I said, it's giving that permission to go, no, your, your instincts are a phenomenal thing that you got to, you got to trust and you got to listen to. Um, so that, like I said, there's a whole spectrum of where people fall on this. Yeah. Yeah. And, may, and maybe we can just jump into that a, a little bit. Cause there, there is a, there's, you, you mentioned earlier to trust your instincts. And I think it might be helpful to go into maybe some differentiation between you know, what, are, what are some of those instincts that you have found or that you, you have noticed has been ex- exceptionally helpful? And is there a way to start differentiating between some of those genuine instincts from perhaps some of the, the, the unhelpful, inappropriate kind of feared thoughts that we have? Sure. Um, and this is where it gets, I said, it gets a little tough and it gets a little dicey because one of the traits of, you know, instincts is persistent thoughts. Um, so for someone that doesn't struggle with anxiety or perhaps OCD, and they keep having this thought come up where they, okay, Hey, you know, there, there's a dude hanging out in his car, uh, on my dark street in front of my house. And that's not normal for my street or my neighborhood. Most people, they explain it away. Oh, he's probably just waiting for somebody. Maybe he's an Uber driver, blah, blah, blah. And they move on. Mm-hmm. But when that thought keeps coming back, okay, yeah, but I mean, we don't really get Uber drivers on this street. And I didn't see a sticker in the corner. And you know what? It, he wasn't just hanging out on his, he wasn't looking on his cell phone like most people do when they're hanging out. Okay. And that persistent thought keeps coming up. That is a sign and a signal that your instinct is telling you something is not right about this situation. But I think it would be tough for someone that deals with continuous persistent thoughts on the regular um, to decipher, okay, when, you know, I always have these continuous thoughts. Um, So I'm curious to know for you, you know, as someone that works with that clientele, how would you suggest somebody that has normally persistent thoughts, when do they trust it and when do they not? Right. Actually, as you were outlining that, um, outlining that example, I think it's a, I think that's a really good example. The the thing that comes to mind is that that, that I've I, I've I've said before it's that um, f- feelings are data, not direction. Hmm. That they're that it's information. That yeah. that 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 intuition that somebody has, or that that gut level feeling, the feared the, the fear that we have, it it's information. It does tell us a lot. It does tell us 
a, a little bit or a lot of it about a situation, you know, if it's dangerous, essentially. But simply having that feeling is, is and I'll just say generally, simply having that feeling is not reason to reason to act or reason to do something um, totally. but we take that feeling into or at least the, the way that i've talked about it uh here on the podcast is we're going to talk about it as 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 part of the whole part of part of the the information and try to give us a little bit of guidance because what you had said you said all right i got this intuition about this guy sometimes we explain it away as it's probably just a dude hanging out in his car waiting for somebody and that's and that is one way that we can put it aside and that may be one way that we're going to start to challenge that feared thought if that keeps popping up but then you also continue to go into well yes while he may just be a dude in his car waiting but you know here's a bunch of other elements that aren't quite lining up and perhaps those things taken into the cluster of of the the feeling that sometimes i can't trust but man there's this there's all this other evidence that may point to the fact that it it, it might not just be a benefit of the doubt scenario. No, totally. Um, exactly. And so what you're referring to is kind of what we call my profession, like the totality of the circumstances. Mm. And as an investigator, uh, we have to be honest and look at all of the possible reasons. You know, when we show up to a radio call a scene, we have a crime or, or we're, we're out looking for criminals and we're possibly detaining someone based on reasonable suspicion of we believe that a crime has committed or is going to be committed and that this person is involved. And so it's that totality of the circumstances and we have to objectively look at it mm -hmm. and go yes there's the possibility that the, here's the most innocent uh, explanation okay here's the possibility of the most nefarious explanation and there's all the things in between let's let the evidence and the information that we're going to process um dictate our, our reasoning with this and kind of what conclusion that we we come to and that is essentially the investigative process what i will say um explaining if i could explain a little more of what i mean by that kind of trusting those that instincts yeah. um your brain is a is a phenomenal tool and you know instinctual um like i said the way that it is evolved over time one could say god given a mix of both um but what it's essentially doing is it's giving you the answer and Basically, your brain is saying, here's the answer. I don't have time to explain. Just trust me because mm. we'll find ourselves in a bad situation and it's incredible. Um, and your brain will just tell you this person is bad news. This situation is bad. You should get out of here. And we go, well, hold up. But why? And this largely comes because, all right, when we're kids, you know, we are in math class and there's a whole math problem. If we just give the answer, what, what's the thing that your teacher almost always would would tell you or ask you? My teacher would say, you're wrong. Go to the back of the class. Okay. Well, well for the rest of us, okay, for the rest ahead. of us, they say, show your work. Oh, yeah. And so we it. not share this thing where you're like, okay, brain, show your work. Why? And our brain is going, we, we don't have time for that. You need to get out of here. But, and, and I try and, you know, tell, uh, tell my students and people you, that explanation, it will come later. It'll be two in the morning later that night. You'll be at the fridge drinking milk. And all of a sudden you're, you'll start thinking, you know, you know, that thing that that person said in the beginning actually contradicted what they said towards the end. They're actually lying about that. Why would they be lying? Huh? You know what? Now that I think about it, I saw a little bit of this tattoo that didn't look right on their neck peeking out above above their collar and all the work of the math problem will start to come. But in the moment, 
we don't have time for that. We just kind of have to, tr- and that's what I mean by trusting our instincts and going, all right, if something doesn't feel right, it's probably because it's not, and giving that permission to trust those. Mm, right. And it also sounds like within this, that's a, there, it takes practice. It takes practice to learn which of those things are, where, where can we trust our intuition and where can we not? And, and I've said on this that actually I'm, as, as we're talking, I'm finding this, this interesting balance for, for the various audiences that may be listening to this. There will be folks who are going to continue to listen or who are, who are previous listeners of this podcast, who, who are going to be, you know, folks struggling with OCD with, with chronic anxiety disorders. And there are going to be some folks who are going to be listening to it who are neurotypical who are not going to be experiencing the the persistent uh persistent obsessive thought um and and so there there is going to be a grain of salt for the various listeners who who are going to be listening to this who are going to say totally. we're going to say but i i think that all the time and what am i supposed to trust and for for someone we also part of that totality right you talked about Part of that mm-hmm. is also recognizing, at least for, for the OCD listeners out there, uh, well, you, if you have a history of OCD, there are going to be some elements where perhaps that it, it fe- it, it's going to feel different. It's going to feel different mm-hmm. than that typical in- intuition. And that there can be some work in that to, to, to trust that balance or to work on developing that balance. But I know a lot of what we're talking about and a lot of the folks that you work with are going to be the neurotypical population where it's going to be folks who don't have a chronic um, anxiety disorder. So there is going to be a difference differentiation in in that uh so i i I just want to throw that out there to all the listeners that as we talk we're going to be developing that and and we're we're going to be uh, addressing that but i'm not going to take every i'm not going to take every other moment to to outline that differentiation so caveat note that all the listeners out there just take note i've said it disclaimer moving on so um so all right, so I think we've, we've talked a little bit about differentiating between the, high, the, the kind of actual dangerous situation. Or actually, is there anything else you wanted to add to that on differentiating between those two things? Uh, you know, I think there's something, and if you want to kind of touch on this, um, there is what is happening versus what could be happening. And that's an important distinction to make because if we go under the category of what could happen, I mean, man, anything is possible Mm -hmm. if you will and it's be easy for us and this happens to all of us and some you know more than others depending uh you know psychologically maybe what they struggle with but we could go down the rabbit hole of like well what if what if my neighbor that i've never had a bad interaction with what if he's secretly a serial killer that has 12 bodies buried in the basement it's possible it is but is it probable no, no, it's not. What, And that's what I mean by going back to letting the evidence really come through and try and uh, elevate evidence over emotion, if you will, because otherwise we can get all spun up on like, well, what if this, what if that versus what, what do I have here? What's actually happening? What's actually going on? Right. What, what feedback and that data have I gotten from someone's interaction with me, what I know of them, what I can see. And that goes a little bit and that ultimately feeds into that trusting your instincts thing versus like letting your mind run wild with every possible bad thing that theoretically could happen. Right. Right. And, and, and that, and that can be a battle for anybody, right? Anxiety, OCD, or, or again, neurotypical is, you know, our, our brain loves. And, and as, as you've said, it's, it's especially designed to have what if type of thinking, 
mm-hmm. to a certain degree, it's super helpful because it, it does help us to avoid danger. It does help us to look out for bad stuff. Um, but it can also take us down that, that rabbit hole that just kind of screws us over. Absolutely. And, you know, if I could just say, like, this is something that I, I struggle with as much as as anybody else. Uh, this is just that is the human condition. And those of us that work in emergency situations or high stress situations, we are not immune from it. Um, we might be a little better at being able to handle it um, and manage it because of the experience that we've gotten and maybe some of the training, you know, um, but we all we all kind of struggle with that. And going back to that, that that imagination is important. And I love what you said of like, this is not a bad thing. Uh, when I train, you know, younger officers or back when I was an EMT training our, our new, our new medics that would come on, I would always tell them, I say, the key to success in this profession is imagining how things can go horribly wrong in every moment and then taking steps to prevent it. Uh, we have a phrase on our department that says like, if it's predictable, it's preventable. Um, that's not 100% true, but that's that's a concept which is is good. And so it's it's important for us and it's important for me and my profession to be able to think what is every possibility that if things could go wrong, what do I have in my control? Let me set myself up for success um, and have that imagination. And that's what ultimately is going to keep myself and my partners alive. Right, right. Gosh, what's so interesting about that? What I what I love about that example one is that that's that is a way that that you and what I what that really leads into is going to be my next question about training and what what how you have been trained to deal with these things. But what what it really resonated with me is um, for for some folks I work with who they'll talk about having you know just horrifically violent intrusive thoughts or terrible mm-hmm. horrible thoughts. Um, and a lot of self condemnation and judgment and and avoidance and of those thoughts, and they you know will spin this tale that they are this awful horrible human because they have these thoughts, um, and and what I try to reframe for them is exactly what you're talking about. The thought itself is just a thought, because case in point, you are training people to have that. You're trying to foster that line of thinking because to a certain degree that thought process is can be beneficial for some but it can also be disastrous for others absolutely right so you know so how is there is there a time when that line of thinking becomes unhelpful for for you and your colleagues totally it becomes very unhelpful uh when you're not at work when you're off duty and this is one of the the struggles for people that are first responders and this thing is that is a great tool to have um like i said in the field that makes you a professional uh someone able to handle emergency situations but then the you need to to a degree be able to turn it off when you go home or else that line of thinking if you're always thinking about well what could happen with uh, my landlord with the rent, what could happen in the future with me and my spouse, what could happen with my kids. And if you, you know, that, that futuring, um, and catastrophic potential thinking, you apply that to your personal life and that, that can make for a real miserable life. And that's, that's something that you have to be able to turn off, uh, which I, I haven't met anyone that does that extremely well. Uh, I think that's a struggle and that's something that you can get better with over time. But that's kind of the, the other side of the coin um, that I, I don't think people really see and understand is um, how the things that make first responders really good at their job also take a terrible toll 
on them off duty and on their uh, in their personal life. And I think our evidence of our suicide rates among uh, police and military really highlight that, unfortunately. And that and that is unfortunate. How how do you is there any discussion amongst your amongst your colleagues about how how to deal with that and and any techniques or tools that have been discussed about how to kind of how to turn that off, as it were? You know, there there is. And it's something that's certainly getting getting better um, mm-hmm. versus, hey, 20 years ago, even 10 years ago. So it's it's talked about more and there are more resources. Um, however, there are some barriers to that, um, not because of any systems or anything like that, but just the individual. Um, when you have professionals that are oftentimes uh, alpha types mm-hmm. and nobody wants to show any sort of weakness, understandably, because they don't want their partner to question, hey, can I trust this individual um, when, when the pressure is on and when life is on the line? So, uh I think that's tough. You know, fortunately, yeah. when you have good friends on the department, you're able to kind of talk about these things a little more. Um, but I think that's a good question. If you wouldn't mind, I could kind of go into some of those things of how how do you the recommendations or pieces of advice on how to how to uh, deal with it properly, if you wouldn't mind. That'd be great. Um, yeah. So, I mean, for any of your listeners that are first responders. And I mean, man, certainly this year, I'm very uh, empathetic towards, you know, medical personnel, nurses that are working in crisis conditions and going, yep, um, that that world, uh, what I call the the code three connection. So police, firefighters, EMTs, uh, code three is driving lights and sirens where there is at the drop of a hat, there is an emergency and you got to drop what you're doing and run towards it with lights and sirens, unsure of whatever your whatever sort of um, trauma or tragedy that you're running into mm-hmm. um, that we all share this shared experience. I call the code three connection. And you look at it and so, you know, the no, some numbers have come out where uh, some studies have gone, okay, the average person is going to experience about one and a half to two legitimate critical incidents in their life, mm. like experiencing a total critical incident. Uh, it's estimated that like a 20-year uh, career police officer will experience approximately 800 critical incidents. And so just thinking of that, um, that experience that we have and how far different it is from, I'd say, the average civilian and potentially even more so depending on what type of assignment you work, where you work, that types of things. Um, And so for any of your listeners that are in the emergency uh, response services or are spouses of one, have family members are, you know, the, these stressors in the jobs, if we don't deal with them properly, they really can affect uh, their can can affect your life in very negative, negative ways. And there's some great books that have been um, written. Uh, There was one called, uh, I believe, Emotional Survival for Cops, um, which was really well done. And just getting the psychology of it, reading things like uh, On Combat by Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman. These things give kind of a window to go, hey, here's what's happening to you physiologically and psychologically during these extreme circumstances. And so you, it gives you a better idea of what, what to expect, what is normal, what is healthy, what things to kind of look um, to kind of deal with. And so I, I will say this, you know, having been in emergency services for over, you know, over 12 years now, mm-hmm. um, you have to, you have to deal with it. Um, 
and but not at the time. And so we always know when we're dealing with these scenarios, um, you know, like this last I remember last summer, uh, you know, working 12 nights straight during all the, the civil unrest here in Los Angeles. And I mean, we were on the front lines and uh, just absolute craziness that we were seeing. And uh, I remember thinking to myself in moments going, OK, this is uh, this is crazy. I, I'm going to have to deal with this at some point, but it's not right now. Uh, time to go to work um, mm-hmm. and many other scenarios. But the key is, and, and most all first responders and cops know that, and they have the ability to not deal with it at the moment. I think, unfortunately, a lot of officers don't deal with it later because it's easy to just keep moving, not deal with it, where my recommendation, something that I found is helpful for myself is like, nope, when when the scene is safe, usually you're not at work. For me, it's usually like the next day uh, when like the emotions of a, of a very serious or, you know, kind of traumatic uh, scenario will come back up. And it's really important to let yourself feel it and process it and not Ooh. fight it. Um, otherwise, you're not going to be able to help process things in a healthy way. And ultimately, you're not going to be able to be better at your job. The next time, you're not going to have the emotional capacity uh, to do what's called of you and to serve the people that you need to in that way. So it's just it's really important to actually feel those things later um, and kind of deal with it. Cause if you don't, it creates problems. Um, I will also say, you know, for this talking mental, emotional health for these things that you need, you need community. You need people that you can talk to about these things, friends, family, and not be isolated. Uh, you need healthy outlets, physical fitness, um, you know, different hobbies. Otherwise it's easy to try and subdue things with alcohol and that can go real wrong real quick. You know, when that's the thing that you find you need in order to just calm down the adrenaline after every shift that turns into alcoholism real quick. Um, Do you recommend some form of therapy, being able to talk through some of these things with people? Um, And ultimately, you know, it's some form of a relationship with your God or a higher power um, is something I personally recommend um, to figure out and find kind of the meaning in all of these things. So these are all things that I've utilized and have been helpful for me um, to be able to deal and process with some of the just, to be totally honest, absolutely insane things that I, that I see and that I do. And I hope that can be helpful to other people in these fields. Right. Right. And, and the, the, the fancy term for what you're talking about is, is called emotional regulation, which I think is a, is a un- unreasonably confusing term that ultimately just means <laughs> how do we deal with things? How do we deal yep. with the stressors of life? And, and, and a lot of the things you mentioned there are, are, are incredibly beneficial. I mean, one of the things you said that, that I think is, it's it's tough for a lot of people, and I can. It's tough for a lot of people. You said to feel the feelings, mm-hmm. right? Um, that that can be it can be off putting. It can be un, it can be uncomfortable for some people that you're going to feel too many feelings, and and it, that the in other words that they feel them, they can be incredibly overwhelming, and there can be that desire just to not to <clears throat> not feel them. Um, are, are, are there some things that, that you might recommend or that you find helpful to, to feel the feelings or to allow that, um, to allow yourself to process those, those highly emotional circumstances? Sure. Um, and and that's going back to at doing it at the appropriate time. And that takes a bit of compartmentalizing Mm -hmm. and 
for there is a bit of stress inoculation um, within our, you know, our job where these things, they affect us less um, over time. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. But if you don't watch it, I think it could turn into a callousness that uh, can be very helpful in certain situations, but is not helpful in other situations. Right. It's really important for me to be completely emotionless uh, when I am dealing with a high stress scenario. It is not helpful for me to be completely emotionless when I'm having a discussion or a disagreement with my wife. You know, like that is not what that is not what she wants. She does not appreciate the clinical nature. I don't want to I'm not going to have it where my emotions get the best of me and I say or do things that aren't fair, or reasonable or good to her. That That's bad. I'm not going to do that. But at the same time, that clinical nature that makes me good at my job will not necessarily make me good at home. And it's hard because we justify that clinical nature because it keeps us alive. But the thing with I think the thing with cops is we're really good at not dying. We're not always great at living. And so that's just that's a struggle that I think a lot of us um, can kind of kind of deal with, but doing those things of when you have a, a serious or a traumatic kind of incident that you're exposed to that you deal with uh, at that later point, whether it's later that night when you're off duty, whether it's the next day, whether it's a week later, whenever it kind of comes up to not fight it, but go, you know what, I'm going to let myself feel this. I'm going to let myself feel those feelings because the, it is safe for me to do so. The scene is safe, if you will. I'm going to do that. And then I'm going to, I'm going to, that's going to allow me to let it go and to move on and to do the next one. Cause otherwise things are just going to kind of compound on itself. And then next thing, you know, uh, you know, you're going to be at a scene that over seemingly nothing, and you're going to just feel all this stuff and you're going to be, whether it's sad, whether it's angry, um, and you're going, why am I feeling like this? And potentially react inappropriately. And unfortunately, you know, we, we've seen that in the past where, um, various circumstances where officers let their emotions uh, get the best of them. And then as a result, they're not reasonable and proportional in how they treat a civilian or in the amount of force that they use. And we, we can't have that. Right. Right. That, that being said, and we can go into a little more later of, you know, just best ways to react and handle emergencies and yep. so forth. Um, but for us in emergency services, and this might sound a little weird, but the best way to care about someone is to, not care about them in the moment. And, and here's what I mean by that. Uh, before I was a cop, I was an EMT running 911 calls all over LA. And so you literally have dying patients that you're doing CPR on. And, or, and in that moment, you can't go existential. You can't think, oh my gosh, depending if I do right or wrong could determine whether this person dies or not. Yes, you do care about them, but the best way to care about them in that moment is to think of it just totally clinically of like, okay, here I go. We've got this IV line. Let's look at our blood pressure. Here we go. Like it's a, almost like a science project that demands a hundred percent of your intention mm -hmm. um, because that way you can keep the emotion out of it because our emotions and coming in and those stressors are not going to allow us to perform to the levels that we need to. And so it's really important to shut out all of those external factors and just focus on doing the job uh, to the best of our ability. And that almost in a will way going, Hey, I'm not going to care about this person. And in doing so that way I can give the best care possible to them. And as any, um, 
you know, as any, any copper will, will tell you, um, for us, it's, it's not the gore, it's the grief. That's what makes this stuff so hard. And so when you have a dying patient in the back of your ambulance and you're working on them and you're talking with your partner and you're getting the gauze and the supplies and you're doing this and you're monitoring vitals and you're calling the hospital and you're doing all these things. Okay. That's, that's challenging. But the thing that makes it hard is when you're in their apartment and you're doing CPR on them and their wife is standing right up over your shoulder, crying their eyes out and praying to God that their husband will live. That's what makes it hard. It's the grief because it, it hits you and you have to be able to compartmentalize it. You have to be able to kind of shut it out in that moment of going, okay, the ex, like I said, the existential of like, here's a human being with people at a family that loves them and they're right there. And if they die, it's going to be the end of their life. And it's going to be in many ways, the end of the relationship and the lives of the right. other people and all this stuff that you could just go the, down the rabbit hole. with. Those are all those what ifs we were talking about. All those what ifs. Um, and those are all true, but that's not going to help you save that person's life in that moment. You have to be focused on the task and the mission at hand. Right. Um, and later on, like I said, you may have to deal with those feelings and those things, but at the moment, um, it's, it's time to go. There's a reason that you're in that job and they called you, they called a professional to try and bring peace to crisis and that's your job and you got to show up and do it. it. What's, what's also coming to mind for me is that there, cause there, there's a little bit of what, it, what I would call hyperbolic language in there, but, but for you, it's also becoming adaptive um, where you've said, I, I, I can't be emotional. I can't think about this. And, and I think it's important to, to specify that it's not that you're saying, don't think, don't feel. You're saying in this moment, it's, it, it's going to be unhelpful for me to get carried away with this what if or to be carried away with the emotional experience that I have. And what we've talked about on this, on this podcast a lot is when we are overwhelmed with our anxiety from an, a mindfulness and an act perspective, it's acceptance and commitment therapy perspective, we're acknowledging that, yes, there's the, there is a crisis, there is a situation that can become overwhelming, but we're also working on redirecting our attention towards, towards the, the action, the, towards the, the thing that we're there to do without mm -hmm. getting, without getting uh, overcome and overwhelmed with that emotional experience, which of course is there. We're not pretending like it's not there, but you're saying, like you, you've referred to, you know, you need to keep your, your, I forget the language you used, kind of your mind on the mission, mm -hmm. right? And what we'd call that ultimately in therapy land would be the, 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 the valued act, the commit, the, the thing that we are committing to. Mm -hmm. So it's this is the, this is the thing that I have to do right now. And for some of us, it's going to be I feel really overwhelmed. So, you know, I'm I'm not going to give my my presentation in class, or I feel really afraid. So I'm just simply not going to go outside. It's to say, well, if if it's part of our requirement for work or for school to give that presentation, yes, we're going to feel anxious, but it's to go and do that thing anyways. And that's kind of what you're 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 talking about for your job. It's you know for you, it's it may literally be life and death. But there's mm -hmm. still that action of saying, okay, right now I feel this, it's there, but I'm going to act as if it's not, and I'm going to do this step, I'm going to do this important step as best I possibly can, and then I'm, I can think about what worked, what didn't work afterwards. Exactly. And I think, you know, in a way, a lot of things you're talking about is really the, the idea of courage, of having fear, but acting in spite of it. Yes. Um, which is not an easy thing to do. And 
all humans, um, including us in these field, like we, we deal with fear as well. Um, but like I said, there, there, we, there's a job to do and you, you got to do it. And so you got to have that courage. And so what I was kind of describing is methods and tools and mechanisms to help you accomplish that, help you to act despite the fear, the emotion, the intrusive thoughts that we all you know, have at a given time. And the more, I will say this, the more experience you get in emergency situations, the the, the less it affects you. Um, I will say this, I it takes a lot to get my adrenaline going these days. Uh, <laughs> pretty much things that, you know, when I, in the very beginning, when I was brand new to emergency services, oh man, every single thing, you know, your heart gets, race gets going. Now it's just, nope, it, it takes a lot to kind of get me up and it still happens, but it's much more rare now that I have all this experience. And I think that that word experience really, really kind of punctuates why that's happened, right? Mm-hmm. You've, you've gone through a lot of them. You've learned that you can deal with them, that you have the skills, you have the knowledge, and you have that experience to know that you're going to be able to get through the other side without the world exploding around you, but, yep. um, but that you can do it. And it requires a little bit of, I mean, if you had, if you had that first call and you went, no, man, this ain't for me, and you quit your job that day, you would never have gotten to this opportunity. This goes to that point about exposure is that you have to go face your fears. And in that moment, you experienced a fear. And in that moment, it might have been a reasonable, justified, across the board, everyone would agree with it, it's a fear. But mm-hmm. you did it, and you kept doing it. And it yeah, became absolutely. easier. Um, and I, you know, bringing it back to uh, what you have often known past of that exposure theory, expo- um, exposure therapy, that repetition creates competency, right? And the more that you do something, you're going to have um, that self-confidence and the ability to do that. And like I said, I, I'm i highly involved with uh, the training aspect of, of our police officers. So I, I work the field, but I also work as an adjunct firearms use of force instructor and all these things. And so I love teaching and I love training our officers and these things that are brand new to them in the beginning, they can become highly proficient with proper training. And I'm always going to be kind of preaching training. Um, one of my you know, favorite quotes I think really fits to the conversation we're having today is no man fears what he does well, um, which was the Duke of Wellington. But if you think about it, right, um, all of these situations that to someone else that I, I kind of do, all right, you are chasing a gang member with a, that is having a gun, right? Um, that is just another day for us. Um, but we're not worried about it because we've done it so much and we do it well. We know, yes, there are many things that are out of control. Yes, that situation could just go absolutely sideways or wrong in any second. But that is, that's where we're comfortable, um, if you will. And for any of your listeners, it's, I kind of go, well, hey, think back to the first time that you ever drove a car mm-hmm. and how much maybe fear or trepidation as you're like, okay, I'm going to traffic and merging onto the freeway for the first time. And you're like, oh God, oh God, oh God. Um, but now, like when you go and you drive to work, are you thinking about the fear of driving your car? Unless you deal specifically maybe with an issue with that. Good, um, good, but the good, most part, good. no, you just do it because you do it very well. And yes, there are all these possible dangers and things that are outside your control, but you don't fear what you do well. Um, And so I kind of say that as an encouragement to people that um, are in whatever kind of industry or things and go, I'm afraid of it. It probably means you're just not good at it yet, but you can change that with proper training and ability. And we find this a lot. You know, I I teach a lot of uh, 
firearms to civilians and the same thing. And people come to it and go, I'm, I'm afraid of this gun because I know of the power that it possesses. And if, you know, it's not handled right, all the things that can happen with it. And that's a good, healthy fear that I appreciate and I want. But as they become proficient and they get training, they can handle it. Um, it's less that we care. Hey, can they hit a 10 ring, you know, bullseye at 20 yards? That's kind of neither here nor there. Can you handle it safely and confidently that you can be safe for yourself and others around is what we really care about with that. And that comes with that proficiency. Yeah. And, and through practice. And, and I'm, I, I feel really, uh, this is a side note, I feel really, really validated that you used a, a driving example because I've used the driving example to explain exposure therapy probably on the past 75 podcasts and I feel like it's getting worn in and thought it's just me. I have not asked Officer Jordan to talk about that example, but he just did it independently. So if you get bored of my examples, it's because people use that example. <laughs> All right, that's separate. That's separate. But yes, I, I, I also I fully I fully agree. And it's um, you know, hearing hearing about hearing about the the element of exposure towards your fears in a in a scenario that is ex, is as extreme as yours can also perhaps be encouraging to folks out there who are worried about taking a shorter shower or who are worried mm. about um, worried about driving or worried about um, you know having a uh, not not thinking about existential thoughts right not thinking about their sexuality today um, they can feel just as risky but it's per perhaps because there needs to be more practice more just hours logged into taking risks and and we can say taking legitimate factual um, or typical risks or taking f taking fear and anxiety risks which feel very real and to a certain degree there are going to be risks and dangers with everything that we do but uh, or else like and we can get through them and we can survive them and get to the other end of it um, exactly. and, and to, to that point um what, one of the other questions i had here is what, what do you wish people did better more of or less of when facing dangerous or stressful situations um you know, it, it's tough. And I, and I say this, go, people do their best. Um, you know, we, we're always dealing with uh, the public in some way, you know, who have just been through a situation and it can be as, as petty as a neighbor dispute to all the way up to a homicide and our, our, you know, scenes of shootings. And people do their best facing dangerous situations. And I guess I, I don't blame them when they don't react as well as maybe they wish they did. It's totally normal. It's totally human. Um, that being said, I will say I have found the the one of the biggest issues is emotions getting the best of people. Um, that that to me, going back to that evidence, you know, over emotion idea, um, people get spun up on their emotions, and that's usually when they make mistakes. That's usually when they make poor judgment calls, and uh, that's when things kind of become problematic when they're facing dangerous situations. That's a hard thing to regulate, um, but I recommend if they have the luxury of of time of waiting for emotions to die down before making decisions or taking actions if they can, that they should not make decisions or actions while, while emotional. Um, that is going to be kind of key and go, okay, you know, let's, if we can, let's let the dust settle. Let's take some breaths. Let's just wait a little bit and give it some time and then go, okay, what are we going to do here? What are we going to react? And we, we find that oftentimes, you know, um, I, I work a specialized gang unit now and we, we deal with, you know, more um, 
going after suspects of a very violent crime. But when I was working patrol and we're just responding to 911 calls, it's a lot of neighbor disputes, uh, domestic disputes, all of these things. And we get there and in the middle of uh, tension, either violence has happened or it's on its way there and we're trying to prevent it. But by separating people, giving them time, let them getting things off their chest, talking about it, we'll see the emotion go down. And by the end of it, We've kind of brought peace to we brought peace to the people. You know, it went from I want this person arrested. I'm a restrainer. I want this. I want that. I want the whole world to the end of going, OK, man, I'm, I'm sorry. And we literally had like people like hug it out by the end and like neighbors are cheering. And then and then we leave. You'll never hear or see about this stuff, but it happens all the time. Um, but that important thing of just going um in um, in emergency or critical situations, unfortunately, emotion is kind of the enemy in that scenario. Um, and managing it and regulating it is kind of the task at hand, which is not easy for anyone to do. Um. So to that to that end, because I I I one hundred percent agree that when we when we come into an anxiety situation, an anxiety provoking situation, and then we. And then we add into it. We we throw fuel on the fire with our own, our own, our own emotion, yelling at it, fighting with it, or being frustrated with the fact that we feel frustrated. Or you, if you were to go into a call and get angry that they're angry, it's only going to sp- spiral out of control. What are some things yeah. that you have done to kind of bring down the situation? Are there some things that you would recommend to help pull e- emotion, as it were, out of the equation? Um, yeah. So, you know, breathing is, is a big one, um, that I, I kind of recommend. And so having that, you know, we call combat breathing, which is a type of, you know, circular breathing to lower your heart rate, because when your emotions get up, your heart rate goes up and we kind of run into ourselves a problems. So that is something that, you know, I even do on, you know, uh, some cr- more critical situations if I have the the time or leading up to it where you just try and monitor your breathing so you can have a good balance because our it's amazing how tied the you know the physical and the mental emotional are and so if we can help put ourselves in a better place physiologically that's gonna help our emotions and our thoughts as well so I, I highly encourage that type of the type of breathing can you get um, getting all that proper blood flow can you give like that, a like a, a cliff's notes version of of circular breathing and i don't sure think most of so my listeners know circular what breathing notes is. or it's uh, commonly referred to as combat breathing and this is something that i mean even like navy seals use it's this idea of like taking a breath in for a, about four seconds holding it for another four exhaling for four seconds and then pausing for four seconds and there are there are many very different variations uh, on it. And I think breathing is becoming more of a uh, trending topic right now, which is yeah. kind of cool. Um, but that's that combat breathing is just these, this cycle of four seconds for each of the phases of, of breathing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've, I've heard that as a square breathing as well. If you think about it. Four, yes. That's four a, it's in, been another four, name. Yeah. So, okay. So that you've found that to be helpful. Mm-hmm. Very, uh, very much so. So in addition to, you know, everything we're talking about of those things in the moment, there's kind of some uh, larger overarching concepts that I think are helpful to people of how to deal with uh, dangerous situations and, and crisis. You know, I mentioned earlier and before that idea of focusing on on the mission. And what I mean by that is focus on accomplishing the next task. 
Um, it's what's the next thing that has to happen. And by doing that, you're able to have your, all the thoughts that are maybe coming in, be able to focus them on not on, oh my gosh, what is all the potential ways that this is going on, but what needs to happen next? Um, and to give an example, right, you, you get in a bad car accident and rather than uh, spiraling and kind of freaking out of going, oh my gosh, what happened? Is the other person hurt so badly? Am I going to go to court? How am I going to pay for this car? How am I going to get to work? How is this going to happen? Am I going to be injured? Am I not going to be able to play tennis ever again? All None of those things are helpful in that moment. But if you focus on what is the next task of, I need, okay, I need to extricate myself out of this car. I need to get out of this vehicle. Can I do that? Yes, I can. I'm going to do that. Okay, that's done. I need to call, make sure that 911 has been called. Oh, wait, people are coming. Someone has called 911. Okay, that's done. All right. I need to go check on the other person. Are they okay? Can I render medical aid? That is the next mission. That is the goal. Okay. The fire department is there. Okay. I need to get myself medical aid. I need to make sure that I am taken care of. Okay. That is done. Okay. Now I need to work with the police to make sure that the report is taken, that all the information, boom, 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 boom. By keeping ourselves focused on the next critical task, that helps us uh, tremendously in times of crisis and Ooh. helps us to not spiral and let that emotion get up and all those problems. And that, uh, that training, that type of theory works really just on a regular life scale. I mean, this last year dealing with a pandemic, um, people, this was kind of a form of crisis that people are dealing with and some people are better at handling it than others. And so for, myself and I know other people that are first responders that are very used to crisis and very comfortable with crisis, this whole pandemic has been, all right, it's business as usual for us. And we're just going one task at a hand. Okay. Uh, listen, my spouse lost their job. Okay. So I need to work more. So I'm going to get focused on building up my business. I'm going to focus on getting overtime shifts. That is the goal. That is the mission. Hey, we've got to educate the kids. All right. We're going to focus on figuring out curriculum and learning how we're going to do that rather than sitting in, well, how long is this going to last? Is life going to be the same? When am I going to see this person? I have this aunt that's in bad health. And what if this happens to her? All of those thoughts, even though they're, they're valid fears and worries, they're not helpful versus I recommend focusing on the next mission at hand. And that will help reduce some of that emotion and keep you on task and help you survive. And not only that, um, come out thriving and victorious through a crisis scenario. Right, right. And I, I really like what you're talking about in, in the sense of, uh, we, we, we would just call that being being present focused and mm. thinking, what is what, what ultimately do I have to do right now? What is the most important next thing that, that I need to do? Because everything that we do certainly does have a, or could have a, well, it does. It does have a consequence and everything could have something horrific and terrible happen. However, sure. it's for the most part, unlikely that those terrible, horrible, god-awful things will happen. Um, but if we get sucked into those things, it's usually just going to put us into a spiral of of fear and rumination and terror. But yeah, if we bring ourselves back to, and it's not to say pretend as if those things aren't ever going to happen, because they could, but we leave them as these existential potentials out there. Instead, we're going to, as a way of managing that, we're just going to focus on, well, what can I do and what do I need to do right now? And those are two separate things, but what do I need to do right now to manage the situation? And what are the things that are within my control that I can do right now within, within this situation? Yep. 
And those that's hard to do. And that's something that I certainly struggle with. And I am still working on do, being better about of how do I um, keep the helpful you know, thoughts and get a, rid of the ones that I can't do anything about are not helpful. And, and I will say this, that, you know, some people, you know, have asked in the past or perhaps listener question going, hey, is is anxiety helpful um, in life or death situations? And I, I would say, no, anxiety is not um, helpful. Um, and we can go into the reasons for that and what happens physiologically. However, there is there is a healthy fear that can be motivating and that can kind of push you to be more thorough and work, work a little harder. And that's not necessarily a bad thing because it can drive you to train more and to prepare more. If we didn't have any sort of, you know, any sort of fear, we would not be prepared for the earthquake when it comes. Uh, we would not have these things on hand. And so for an example that I, I like to give is, you know, uh, the unit that I work, we will serve arrest warrants. Uh, you know, we're lined up on the door and breaking into somebody's house to take them into custody. And we've done it on murder suspects and various things. It's a highly, highly dangerous operation that we do. And I've been the team leader on multiple of these where I'm the one planning out and directing my team of guys. And I have such, I have a great fear of one of my teammates being hurt or killed. Um, that, that's the greatest fear that I have of happening. And so, as I think any copper will tell you, you know, that night before the, you know, you're leading a team to serve a, a very dangerous warrant, you're thinking through all the things and go, did I miss anything? And you're running through all the steps in your head to try and come up with every scenario. And that's a good thing because I want to make sure that I've covered every possible contingency that I can, that I'm as well prepared as possible. So my team can be as successful and safe as possible. And that's a really good, good thing to have. And that works for everybody else of, we want to use that fear essentially as a healthy motivator uh, mm -hmm. when done in the right context. So we can be ready and prepared for all of the challenges that life throws at us. Right. Right. And again, that there there is a there can be a time and a place for that. And it sounds like in, in some situations it's incredibly beneficial, in some situations it can be a hindrance. Exactly. Right. Okay. Um so I know I I know we're we've I've I've taken up a lot of time. I know there's a couple of questions that we can certainly still hit. Um, so we can certainly talk about your your own anxiety in life if you'd like to talk about that, or I have a couple of questions from listeners. Uh, yeah, we can tell talk about any of that. Um, I'll just touch really, you know, briefly. I think I've talked fear, anxiety, you know, in my own life and trying to uh, harness that for good to make uh -huh. me very good at my job and very thorough. Um, that's good, but it that works great on duty, off duty, shutting off is the challenge. And that's something that, you know, I'm always trying to figure out how to do better. And an interesting thing that I've found is uh, I used to love flying on planes. I used to love it when I was younger, but now I get this anxiety when I'm on planes and there's any turbulence. Um, even though I know like planes don't fall out of the sky, statistically, like my logic brain knows this is normal. This is fine. Statistically, this is the safest way to fly, as Superman would say, right? Um, but my body physiologically is going oh my gosh, we're in a life and death situation. And you just feel that. Right. Um, and so that's been really kind of interesting. And I, I'll acknowledge that it comes, you know, probably it's a level of control issues. Uh, I remember going up to on a Cessna plane flying with a 
a family friend and we're, we're flying. And I'm doing okay. And he, at one point while it's just he and I in this tiny little plane and he just hands me the, you know, the wheel and he says, all right, you fly it now. And I'm doing it. And I wasn't necessarily comfortable because it was a new thing and I don't want to crash this plane, but somehow I was doing better in that scenario than on a 747, you know, with a professional pilot um, on a plane that is highly, highly unlikely to go down. Right. So that was an interesting thing of just, you know, for us, I think as law enforcement officers, um, we, we know that we are two steps away from death at any moment, but we, we want to go down swinging. We want to know, Hey, I'm going to, I can fight my way out or at least try. And so to be totally powerless, like when you're on a plane, that's a struggle for me. And I, I've talked to other officers who've yeah. experienced the same thing. So it's, it's different stuff for everybody. And it's so fascinating to go, okay, Hey, you know, I, I busted down the door of this gang member, like, you know, I'm first dude through the door yesterday and I did that totally fine. But here I am, you know, my fiance is dead asleep. Here's a child over here that's having fun watching cartoons on this plane. And yet I'm the one uncomfortable. It's so bizarre, mm -hmm. um, but it really goes to show you that we all struggle with different things and these feelings affect all of us in different ways. Right, right, right. I, I, I appreciate you being so vulnerable to uh, to share that because it's it it can feel very weird to have that experience for for someone who is you know who who may not have a a chronic anxiety disorder. Um, for you know for in in a sense, I I, I call I call these people the uninitiated. Um, but to but to go oh this is a really weird experience. I know nothing's wrong, and yet it feels incredibly wrong. And how yeah. do I deal with this, or what do I do? And and sometimes when we avoid that, when we avoid those situations, we again we train our brain to say, I, I need to avoid that feeling, or yeah. that feeling is bad. Whereas we when we use again the, the 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 totality of this situation, we can say, all right, I know this feels scary, but ultimately, rationally speaking, I know it's not, and I'm going to show myself that it's not by doing it, by mm -hmm. letting myself do that over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. Yep. So how, how are you doing flying these days? Uh, better. Good. I think just, you know, as you get better dealing with uh, those anxiety, the breathing things, that stuff like that, it's, it's better now, um, you know, be, because of that. Awesome. Awesome. Um, should we jump into those listener questions or is there more sure. about it? Okay, so I got three questions from some listeners. You kind of talked about one, um, which is, uh, uh, does anxiety help you in a life or death situation and you said no. No, it, it doesn't. And I mentioned that, you know, healthy fear that can help prepare you and motivate you. And that's that's a good thing. Um, but what people have to understand is and we whenever we teach firearms to, you know, civilians and new people is physiologically what happens to you under high levels of stress. And basically when that happens, like your forebrain shuts off and all you're left with is your like instinctual lizard brain or what's commonly referred to as, as muscle memory. And that phrase is a little bit of a misnomer, but people understand when kind of what you're talking about mm -hmm. when you say it. Mm -hmm. So that's why I use it. Uh, myelination is the proper correct word for my neuro nerds out there. Um, but what happens is all of a sudden your thinking brain just kind of shuts off. And this is the reason that people forget the number to 911 
they'll be under and a and it's a real doc documented cases this really happens that people they're stressed out of the mind because someone is actively breaking into their home you know their ex-boyfriend who's been abusive with their strain order says i'm going to kill you and he's breaking down the door they go and they forget the number to 911 like that that would seem ridiculous but in that moment their brain is in fight or flight mode they've just fully engaged the sympathetic response where all the blood has gone to their core they're ready to fight and that is the you know, the pupils have dilated, they're in this mode, but unfortunately we lose dexterity in the hands. And so that's why people have a hard time dialing 911 and they'll hit the wrong number. Mm -hmm. This happens. So it's important to know these things to know one, this is physiologically uh, normal, but two, that you, you have to prepare for it. And that's the importance of training. And this is why we stress this so much with firearms, right? Because on a, on a range under perfect conditions where there's no real stressors uh it's a new skill and there's a lot of new gun owners in the united states uh after this last year and a lot of people that have this and under perfect conditions they struggle with how to manipulate it properly how to hold it how to load it unload it god forbid they have a malfunction of the weapon and how to clear it and what we teach them is going okay under stress if you are not totally practiced with this where it is essentially muscle memory you're not going to remember how to do this in the moment um and so that's important for people to know that these things you have to train and train and practice so your body can do it without even thinking i mean you know kevin you're a musician right like there are certain kind of. songs and stuff on your bass that you can play without thinking and your fingers have the kind of the muscle memory. But when you're first learning it, you wouldn't be able to do that. You have to think about each thing as you're learning a new song or maybe when you're, you know, new to being a musician. It's a similar, similar concept. Right. right. And, and I've gone through a firearms training with Jordan and uh, and, and I'll, I can attest to that is that, you know, we, we literally spent two to three hours before we even pull the trigger once. And it's just, here's this thing, here's how to hold it, here's how to clear it, meaning getting getting any ammunition out of it in a safe manner that is not pulling the trigger. Um, and uh, am I understanding the, the term clear correctly? <laughs> sure. He says sure. sure. All right. Um, but um, he, it's, it, it's, it's doing it over and over and over again that uh, that, that we start to become comfortable. And yeah, the uh, the musician thing. It's you know I can play you know a, a one five six four song and I can play it without thinking. And to my music nerds out there, you'll know what that means. Um, now, to the point about anxiety, I'll also say is that what we what you're talking about on is having when we feel way too much anxiety, it can be um, disastrous to our our performance. Mm -hmm. There's this magical spot with anxiety where we where actually a little bit of anxiety is actually beneficial. I'll, I'll, I won't spend a whole bunch of time on this, but I'll let everybody look up the Yerkes Dodson line. And what um, what Jordan's talking about is being on the far end of it where our performance is actually hindered. Whereas somewhere in the middle, we actually have a boost in our ability to perform. We want to feel a little on edge. We don't want to feel completely lackadaisical because then we we don't really put our all into it or we don't put effort into it. But that's that's um, that's a, a it's it's separate, and I think that is a, um, a n not the case of what Jordan is, is describing. No, yeah, totally, and that's that's a great point because, like I said, that that higher levels of adrenaline uh, that can be used um, to your advantage. We have documented cases of that with you know police shootings, uh, officers that 
performed extremely well under high stress. I mean, that was largely because of the training that we had. And so to give an example, right, um, a common thing when with the sympathetic response and you're under stress is what we call tunnel vision. And it's like you're looking through uh, a toilet paper tube and you're just everything on the edges kind of becomes a little blurry or dark and you get so kind of honed in and focused. It's mm-hmm. a survival technique um, that can be just. Uh, dis- it can be a disadvantage if you have multiple threats and you need to be aware of your surroundings. So we always talk about breaking that tunnel vision. Um, But that's an example of something that's happening and that can be bad if you don't have that training, but certain officers and various, uh, you know, shootings have described, okay, everything was in crystal clear focus. I was looking down the barrel of a gun. I could see his finger on the trigger. I could like almost read the serial number on the side of the gun that was being being pointed at me things that you couldn't do normally that they actually perform better in that moment um with that advantage of that adrenaline uh but also that that training as well and and you hear that in various stories with civilians people that survive these things or they're able to do incredible things in the moment so it can be an advantage so yes there is a sweet spot so that actually brings me to the second question it's the the second question is why do i do really well in true states of emergency when i'm a super anxious person i'll say i know the person who asked this question and they do have a chronic anxiety disorder so why is it that in 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 true states of emergency they they do very well however in other areas where it is not a quote true state of emergency it is a perceived state of emergency they are all all, all over the place or not as on it uh i would say because under in states of emergency uh they do well because their brain is shut off their forebrain frontal lobe portion is shut off that area where normally all the ways that we can, we talked about spiraling, spiraling, futuring, uh, thinking of all the ways that things yeah. go wrong. All of a sudden, that part of our brain isn't working. It's shut off. And all we're left with is that instinct, that muscle memory, that lizard brain survival. So I would say that makes sense to me that normally when everything's working, um, the pervasive thoughts that they uh, deal with you know, are kind of running amok. But if we under stress, we literally shut off that part of the brain and we're left with our survival tactics. They do very well. So that makes a lot of sense to me that they would have that experience. So kind of in the moment of, of extreme uh, danger, uh, they they disconnected you know, the prefrontal cortex. That's where all of our kind of uh, our, our, our thinking and cognition comes in. Um, mm-hmm. So that's so taking that scenario or taking that factor out of it, they can just kind of focus on the present and, and responding in here now so perhaps that leads to the third question which i think is super fun the third question is do i scream when i'm being attacked or kick the human in the crotch or both uh great question great question (laughs) this leads into a whole other topic we could spend an entire podcast on which is application of force and violence and the realities of force and violence. But for this question, uh, I'll say all of it. Why not both? Um, the real answer is it depends with any type of violence. It, there, the totality of the circumstances, it depends the situation, the scenario, all these things of whether or not something is justified. Um, if I'm speaking to a scenario that I think she's referring to of, you know, let's just say a female that is being physically attacked by a violent aggressor, uh, Absolutely. All of it. You need to respond 
quickly and violently and aggressively. Uh, this is not a game um, and half measures don't really work, but violent, aggressive action is more likely to stop that person's actions, prevent those person's actions, or get them to just give up because it's not worth it and I want no, no part of it. Uh, you have to understand, Criminals are largely uh, predators of opportunity. And if you if you watch any like nature documentaries, right, you know, African plain predators, they don't go after the weakest. Uh, they don't go after like the strongest in the herd. They're always going after the weakest, the young, the old. They want the path of least resistance. They want the easiest target. They don't want a lot of resistance. Right. Um, and that victim selection is big for violent crime criminals. So by giving them resistance, as much resistance as you can, they are more likely to go, you know what, this is not worth it. This is not what I signed up for. I'm going to go on to the next person that isn't going to, you know, fight and resist so much, mm -hmm. if you will. Right, right. Right. So I, I suppose at the um, at, at, at the tail end of this, I guess, is there are there any points that you would like to make just to kind of punctuate to the listeners um, or, or have some some takeaways uh, for, for for people who who are maybe thinking about safety, maybe thinking about dangerous situations? What what should they keep in mind? Uh, sure. And like I said, it depends specific situation, you know, who the person was, what exactly they're how to avoid. But if we want to talk about some just practical takeaway overall safety. Uh, here'd be some things that I'd recommend. Uh, number one is have a plan. Uh, I cannot recommend whatever it is. Um, having a plan of how you're going to deal with a crisis or emergency is going to put you far ahead of the game. And you're always going to be behind the curve when something happens because you're reacting to it. But you can reduce that amount that you're buying the curve by having that plan. And that can go from anything of, okay, what is our family's plan if there's a 10.0 earthquake? What is our plan if someone breaks into our house in the middle of the night? Do we have the designated room that we're all gonna come to, that we barricade, that we call the police from? All of these things, that reduces the, the deer in headlights because when we are confronted with an, a crisis or emergency situation, our brain does this processing reaction time of what's going on, what am I going to do? And that's a lag time. And like I said, we're already behind the curve. And especially if it's someone trying to rob you, attack you, there's going to be that lag time of like, wait, what, what's happening right now? Mm -hmm. And we want to reduce that. So by having a plan of going, this is what I'm going to do if someone pulls a gun on me. This is what I'm going to do if this... Um, the plan will inevitably change because it's it's always going to look a little different, mm. but you're starting from a much better jumping off point than like, oh, crap, I've never thought about this. What am I supposed? That is not the time to figure out what you're supposed to do. So have a plan ahead of time. Huge survival technique. Uh, second, I'd say be aware of your surroundings. And this kind of goes back to, you know, that illustration I gave earlier of the, the, the drunk girl coming right. out of the club at 2 a.m. in the high heels and her face in her phone, completely unaware of her surroundings. So when, you know, the dude's doing the robbery because they go up to Hollywood to party on the weekends and then rob people afterwards to pay for it, when they are approaching her or there's a car following her or a car that passed, you know, around the block twice and is looking and decides, okay, she's the one when that car pulls up. Uh, they're totally aware, unaware of their surroundings. So it's absolutely key that you have your head on a swivel and you're aware of what is going on around you. With that, the kind of third point I recommend, know your location. I, you know, I often say if, if something happened and you had to get on the phone with 911 right that moment, 
Could you tell them where you are? Do you know where you are? Do you know at least major cross streets, um, you know, a hundred block address, uh, you know, monument, something, you know, in Mm -hmm. the area that will kind of point them to where it is because we, as the police, you know, we've got lag time. It's already going to be a minute till we can get to you. We don't want any further issues to prevent that of, well, this person doesn't know is uh, they're at 700 West 74th street or 700 East 74th street. I, that's, that's like 10 city blocks. Uh, and that is critical, critical time. So know your location, be able to articulate that. Mm. Um, fourth, I would say up for success. And that goes this idea of preparedness. And I'm not I am not a doomsday prepper. This is that's not what I'm talking about here, where you've got a bunker underneath and everything ready. But there are simple things that can set yourself up for success. Having a charged phone, having a gas tank that isn't below half empty, having a flashlight in your car. These are little things that like when you get in a critical accident and you're, you know, you're in need of care or you get robbed. These are things that are really important to have so you can get resources to you immediately. Um, so just a little bit of preparedness really goes a long way. It's really and then point. finally, fifth, I'll say carry pepper spray. It's the best thing in the world. I, uh, I recommend it to everybody. It is uh, it's very it's not a silver bullet, but it's very effective. I have been pepper sprayed. It's the worst thing in the world. It's absolutely terrible, Um, but it's non-lethal. So if you, you know, if you do it to the wrong person or, you know, your kids get in your purse and pull it out and they spray each other, it's going to be a bad night, but no one's going to die from it. Uh, So that's, I recommend to kind of everybody, Hey, this is a great, that is a great tool, uh, defensive tool because you can spray someone with it causes involuntary eye closure. And there's whenever we have, so much pain in our face, our hands always go to our face. So that means if their hands are on you, they're coming off of you and they're going to their face, their eyes are closed, which allows you to get out of there and they can't see where you're, you know, where you run off to. Um, so that'd be the fifth and fifth and final. I think those are those are all fantastic points, and um, I, a, a lot of those, um, a lot of those are. I mean, even for myself, are things that that I'm not gonna I'm not gonna think about, and I don't think a lot of people think about about them. Totally. And that's, you know, that's how I kind of, I got into this, you know, six years ago doing the public speaking, um, which has now turned into this, this business of security consulting and public speaking and all these things that I do outside of my law enforcement job was, you know, we as the police, um, we're very reactionary by nature. I mean, something happens and they call 911 and we show up and we try and pick, pick up the pieces and arrest the perpetrator and all of that, um, which is necessary. And we do the best our, we can to be preventative, but I, I, I wanted there to be more preventative means, if you will. Mm-hmm. And so this kind of came from, you know, I, uh, at the time I was working patrol, working night watch, And I would work, whether it was Hollywood or Watts or wherever, um, you know, I'd work a Saturday night from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. I'd get off work and then I would go Sunday morning straight to church and volunteer with high school youth ministry. And I had all my like high school girls there. And it was just a thought of like, all right, just, I mean, two totally different worlds, but I spent this whole night dealing with, you know, Vic victims and suspects of violent sexual crime. And here I've got my students and I want them to be safe. And, you know, we want to be preventative. And so that was like, Hey, I'm going to sit down with all of our high school girls and I'm going to give them this safety talk because I don't want them to be victimized. And that's, I think that's the thing that unfortunately is a uh, uh, unknown or misconception about uh, 
police and law enforcement. You know, I think there's a, there's a lot of thoughts or preconceived notions that aren't quite accurate that are out there. But at the end of the day, for those of us in law enforcement, we don't want people to be victimized. That is our number one goal. Um, sometimes that means putting people in jail to do that. Other times there are other means, but it's the ultimate goal of we're trying to reduce victimization. And that's why I do what I do. That's why I've been speaking all over at these, you know, various groups, realty groups, mothers groups, churches, high schools, the whole thing over the years, because we want to reduce victimization through this prevention. That's awesome. That's awesome, Jordan. Well, um, how, how can people find you? Uh, yeah, so they can go to precisionsafetyinc.com. Um, so my company, Precision Safety Inc., uh, we do, like I said, public speaking, do security consulting, and also firearms education as well. So go to that website. Uh, we've got audio clips of various talks that I give, bio, um, some references for some great people. So I just say, hey, it's all on the website. Go check it out and see if something is right for you or uh, someone you know or one of the groups that you're involved with. Awesome. Well, I'll put a link uh, to that in the uh, in the, the episode page for this uh, on uh, fearcastpodcast.com. So, all right, Jordan, thank you so much and have a good day. Hey, appreciate it. Love, love being here. Thanks for having me. All right. Bye. All right, everybody. Thank you all very much for making it through that episode, that very, very long episode. So it, uh, it means a lot if you hung out for it. I hope it was interesting. I hope we touched on some topics that, that uh, um, were relevant to you. Um, and hopefully, in some areas, it gave you some, some uh, things to think about. So I, I won't make this post lewd uh, that, that much longer. But if you have a question for Officer Jordan or, or would like any, uh, I'd like to add anything to it, either, either questions or concerns or, or just any comments that you have, go over to fearcastpodcast.com. You can send me a message. It's going to be through the Ask a Question link. So you're not asking a question. You might just be telling me something. But go there. That will, that will absolutely get to me. I'll read it. And uh, if you have a question for Officer Jordan, um, he would be delighted to be back on and to talk about uh, some of your questions or any concerns that you might have. So, all right, everybody, please remember that the FearCast is not substitute for psychotherapy. If you have a question about getting into treatment or need a little bit of assistance in your own therapy, um, go over to fearcastpodcast.com and you can go to uh, find help link and uh, uh, learn a little bit about um, that there. All right, everybody, until next time, take a risk, challenge yourself, and don't take your brain too seriously. Bye.